Welcome back to the Tale of Edgar Trunk official podcast. This is episode five. We are covering chapters nine and ten. I'm Jason Silva, author of the series. And Matt. I'm Annette Silva, wife, cheerleader, and awesome person. That is very true. So we are we're almost done with this book. I can't believe it. We have one episode after this. We pretty much have like when we end this episode, the next one will be the final chapter, and then there's like an epilogue. That's the only reason it's two chapters. Okay, so one more episode of season one, book one of this recap series. I feel like this is the episode, these two chapters, we learn a lot more about some of these creatures, this factory, Edgar, his parents. It's like we're starting to get a lot more information. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like, okay, bring your pen and pencil because we've got some notes. We've got some mind-blown moments for you coming up. We uh, should start with chapter nine. I'll do a summary. And there's a whole section I want to go over that I want to read. Cool. But let me do the summary. I'm going to leave that part downplayed, and then we'll come back and we'll read that bit. Okay, this is chapter nine. It is called Fall from Grace. So where we left off, uh, we were outside the factory uh, in the last episode, last chapter, and Sebastian, who we've met before, but now it's more formal, more formal of an introduction, the Krillo, and uh, Sebastian has helped Edgar. Uh, he's like, there's a hole up here, we should jump into it, but you're not going to fit. You have to take off your oxygen tank, which is a terrifying concept, considering Edgar knows the air to be toxic outside the factory. And as far as he knows, they are still outside the factory. And if they jump in this hole, they will remain outside the factory as well. So not good. Anyway, uh, at Sebastian's insistence, Edgar has no other option. He removes his oxygen tank. He drops into this hole in the ground. Sebastian follows him. And it's like this uh, clanging fog camouflage machine thing is fast on in pursuit and is right where they just were above ground. It's like hovering over the, the hole, making loud noise, scary, um, but they're safe. Uh, they appear to be anyway. Edgar finally removes his mask. He got rid of the tank, but he had the mask on and uh, has takes a moment to regain his senses and they move on. Uh, as they move on down yet another tunnel uh, as led by Sebastian, Edgar admits that he was terrified of Krillos uh, and that outside he kept seeing these Krillos being like deposited and it was just really scary and he feels bad that he was scared because Sebastian seems really nice and Sebastian's a Krillo and he doesn't mean to attack his kind with uh, these fears and that they certainly, uh, they come from nowhere really, I mean... He's never met a Krillo, so why is he so terrified of it? Anyway, while they're doing this, uh, Edgar recalls uh, the machine, yep, with the Krillos, and Sebastian kind of, as he's hearing this, he like looks off and he disappears into a memory. Uh, and uh, we don't know what it is, but he's clearly disturbed by it. We learn a little bit more about this as we go. Um, finally, though, Sebastian tells Edgar that he is the last of his kind, uh, that Sebastian is the Krillo. He goes on to tell this whole story of the Krillos, and that that's what we're going to get into in a sec. Edgar, um, after all that, Edgar asks about his name, 
uh, his name Edgar, Edgar no one. Is it really Edgar no one? Is it Edgar Trunk? What's the deal? And Sebastian sort of gives this cryptic response, like it is and it isn't. And Edgar asks, am I the child of inventors? Like, are, were my parents inventors? Sebastian says, yes. He says, uh, am I descended from a long line of inventors? Sebastian says, yes. So Edgar has uh, a thousand more questions. He's finally getting some answers. And uh, he asks uh, yet another question, but there's no answer. Sebastian has disappeared before he can answer them, yeah, even though just because Edgar asks Sebastian a question, there's no guarantee Sebastian's going to answer him as, as we've learned. And uh, Edgar's not surprised at all that Sebastian is gone because this kind of seems to be his MO. And so Edgar does what he does. He moves on, he investigates the space, and he discovers a trap door. So he opens it. It's like dark, of course. He slips down into some new space uh, it, with the door shut behind him. And as he moves on, it, it remains very dark. And so he just carefully makes his way in search of Sebastian, although I don't get the sense that he really thinks he's going to find Sebastian. He just kind of, there's nowhere for him to go. He's got to investigate. He's got to be proactive. And uh, before he knows it, there's a great chill he feels. It just kind of cuts to the bone. And he realizes, even though it's very dark, he could tell he's in a gigantic cavernous space and the ground is ice. Visibility is limited, but he presses on. He sort of uh, now begins to slide on the ice a little bit. And so he kind of like ice skates on his forlorn hand-me-down, 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 hand-me-down shoes. Wee! Wee, he's just skating and being <laughs> ridiculous and he's shouting and the shouts are echoing. And he, before he knows it, he, his eyes kind of adjust and the ice gives off like a very faint glow. So he's able to see a little bit and he sees that there's a sign the sign says, danger, open chasm. Edgar's like, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. All of a sudden, he slips. He kind of comes to a sliding stop, and his feet are dangling over an edge. Oh, God. So his feet are now dangling over some edge. He carefully feels about the edge with his hands, and it's like this cliff, and he's on the edge of it. He has stopped at the very last moment. So anyway, he's sitting on the edge of this chasm. He's noticing how dark it is when he hears a high-pitched whine, like from a machine. He begins to feel this kind of rumble as well. Something seems to be coming toward him from the depths of the cavern, uh, which gets louder and more terrifying. And right when it's upon him, it seems to stop. And then the sound just suddenly like dies down, although there's like a low hum. And there's a click and a spotlight shines right onto Edgar. It's almost like some subterranean alien invasion. Edgar can't see anything. This bright light is in his eyes, but he carefully gets to his feet and he stands and he faces it anyway. What is it? I want to go back to this conversation with Sebastian. Bear with me. It's a couple pages, but it's just, it, there's so much in it, like on page 146. Um, Sebastian has just said, I'm the last one. Like, I'm the last girl. And Edgar's just sort of like, tell me more. Uh, and this is what Sebastian says. Many years ago, there was a change. The darkness came. It blotted out the sun and stars. It made everything black and gray. Used to be a beautiful field out there with green grass and wildflowers. We had butterflies, 
Now it's all trees. The evil ones took root, their plans backfiring. Excuse me. I think they underestimated it, underestimated him. They thought they could tame it, make it work for them, make it and make him work for them. They were wrong. We weren't always like this, you know. Krillos, I mean, with these ghastly feet. My kind, as you call us. We're once sharp and cunning. We weren't like crows. We were crows. Well, ravens, if you want to be PC about it. The darkness, the imposters, and the pollution in the factory began to pump into the air. <clears throat> Excuse me, God. <clears throat> Don't eat really salty beef stew before you have to talk <laughs> on a podcast. Um, the darkness, the imposters, and the pollution in the factory began to pump into the air. It had a powerful effect on us. It forced our wings crooked. It turned our beautiful and dynamic talons into these wretched monstrosities. Sebastian reflected for a moment. His shoulders drooped and his eyes watered. We learned to survive the new climate when none of the other creatures could. We became outcast, cursed things. Some of us never got over our transformations, never learned to live with them. And over time, a great divide formed among our kind. We split into two factions, the underlings and the overlings. The underlings retreated into the ground, made tunnels, and linked them to the intricate network of the factories. The overlings took flight. Only, only those of us strong enough to fly and chose a life above the smog. It was rumored that if one flew high enough, he could see the sun and stars. Those were only rumors, though. No overling to take flight had ever returned to associate with the ground-dwelling underlings. That's what I am now, a ground-dweller. I don't do well up there. These wings won't fly. We lived like that for a long time, split into two groups, living our own lives and keeping clear of each other. But a strange thing happened. The smog thickened, went from gray to black, and day by day it pressed toward the ground until it covered the leaves and branches of the forsaken, those horrid souls who got more than they had planned. And soon after, the spirit fog arrived. It was light and mobile, more a wisp than a fog, and it had magical powers. It had terrible powers. Suddenly and mysteriously, the underlings began to fall sick in the tunnels. Days after, when our number had been reduced to a handful, the overlings returned. They began to fall from the sky, their wings broken and the beaks stiff. It was awful. Those krillos that you saw, the others, weren't really krillos, not really. Sure, they used to be, but what good's a body without a brain, without a soul? It takes them. The fog takes them, most unwillingly and some unknowingly and it returns them just like you saw them. They come back empty. It makes me toss and turn at night. I don't sleep, Mr. Edgar. I haven't slept in a very long time. I wonder when it'll get me and put an end to the whole race. It's so dark. Yeah, very dark. I mean, fog is like depressing and sad, but <laughs> it's kind of evil too in this book. Oh yeah, it's like, it's it's a it's got more substance to it. It's scary. Like imagine fog just wisping you away and then ejecting you and you're just a vegetable of a human now. Yeah, so that's the second half of this, but the first half there's some interesting like tidbits about the sort of before time of the factory. So like Sebastian talks about 
that, you know, it used to be a beautiful field out there with wildflowers, green grass, butterflies. butterflies. Yeah. And then, then the darkness came. It blotted out the sun and stars as we know. Um, but this whole thing about the evil ones taking root, like their plans backfiring. Um, and then, and then he links it. He thinks that they, these evil ones underestimated it, underestimated him. <clears throat> they thought they could tame it, make it work for them, make it and him work for them. They were wrong. What do you make of that? I think, is it like the Krillos or what once were ravens stood for good? And so they were kind of unchangeable? Well, I think he's referring not to the crows here. He's talking about the workers that became the trees. Oh. If you remember Harold and Margaret in the last few chapters, they spoke of these workers. They were kind of evil. Well, there were good ones and then they became bad. These are like these two moments of that little bit from Harold and Margaret and this bit here from Sebastian. They're sort of like overlays that you could stack and get more of this full picture of this factory and what happened. Um, the, uh, the dust bunnies, they talk about like the workers that have sandwiches and talk about the lady and stuff like that and that they were nice, but then they were replaced by like these evil workers. And now we have Sebastian telling us that these uh, evil ones, their plan backfiring on them, that they underestimated him and underestimated it, thinking that it and him could work for them. And so they're some sort of, I, it feels to me as we piece these clues together, and there's a lot of clues in this first book that become really important in book three, especially, but now going back and, and reviewing it, this book, I think overall could seem like very light on answers, but I think if you read closely, there's a lot of information packed in here and it's in these little moments and it does take like, you have to like corroborate, you know, yeah, the the pieces. But from what I get from these passages, the factory was a good place. Um, and we'll get more into the specifics of like the function of the factory. But in terms of like being a good place, serving a good purpose, happy workers, green fields, like it seems like an ideal place. Then these evil ones come in and take over. Now, whatever this factory does or, or is capable of, these evil ones have a plan to use it. Well, part of their plan to use it seemed to also include using it and him, these mysterious creatures, figures, entities, whatever they may be. We don't know yet. We know more about it, certainly, than we do about him. But they are like, we can use, we will use them. This is our big nefarious plan. Well, what do we know? We know that they are no longer here and that it and him are. But that's not entirely true that we don't know that, that they're gone because we learn that they have become these trees. So this middle level evil planning group, they are the ones who are after when things are good but before it and him, this little mid-tier 
in the timeline. They, it seems, were completely eradicated by it and him. It's like they thought they could tame them and they rose up and took over. And as a reward, they have been turned into trees planted on this island. And we already have seen that they're ominous, their their barks can slough off, they've got this evil black core to them, and very ghastly. All I can say is what goes around comes around. <laughs> Definitely. You're evil, you're gonna get turned into a tree. That's right. And and not like this banyan tree that's beautiful and no. Edgar was born. No. Like the trees at the end of The Lion King when everything was caught on fire. <laughs> so there's this other level of like, okay, this effect. So you just had these ravens and maybe it was through the pollution and mutation or something, but clearly these ravens, maybe it was a magic of some kind. They transformed into like these more monstrous versions of themselves. Some could still fly. Some couldn't, and out of survival, this created two groups among what would have just been one species. Yeah, overlings and underlings. And this idea that if you flew above the smog, the sun and stars were still, were still there. It's kind of beautiful. I just made up a poem. Let's hear it. Overlings and underlings, but woe is me, can't use my wings. Oh, babe. That's Sebastian. That's so sad. It's true, though. Yeah. He can't fly. Yeah, he can't fly. He's got these feet that slap around. And they're gross to look at. He, uh, Edgar does say, like, the death whale, can you, like, really do that? Wait, is that in this chapter? No, that was in the previous chapter. <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. Remember? I made the sound. Yeah, you did make the sound. But he says... But Sebastian said, I, I've uh, scared a few people off trying to carry a tune in my days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but can't say I ever killed anybody with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we basically just learned that Krillo, these frightening Krillos are not frightening at all, that they're just scared and that they were just birds before. Yeah, they're victims in this story. They're not scary monsters at all. And sort of part of this transformation is that the overlings, yeah, they could fly and who knows what happened. The underlings, though, they kind of had to adapt and they helped build some tunnels. So some of these tunnels that Edgar's been using, I think you could probably pick apart which is which, but generally I think the main takeaway is that their work that they had done is benefiting Edgar to an extent in terms of just being able to like get away from escape danger and get back into the factory when he's stuck outside, that sort of thing. Yeah, but we learn now that they're all gone and Sebastian's the only one left. Right, so that leads us to the second part of this section that we just read where he's talking about the machine. He's talking about, like, they... These Krillos, like, returned, like, these overlings, they came back, but it's almost like they were caught. Not that they came back of their own will. Um, or they further mutated and now they couldn't fly anymore either. So whatever was the cause, they've ended back 
and this wispy fog machine has claimed them. And he says, those Krillas you saw weren't really Krillas, not really. They used to be. And then he's very cryptic here. But what good's a body without a brain, without a soul? He goes on to say, it takes them. The fog takes them, most unwillingly and some unknowingly, and it returns them just like you saw them. They come back empty. So, does this remind you of anything else that that could be happening in this book? Well, it reminds me of the trees that are also now just carcasses of yeah. death with no, that, that used to be a soul, used to have a heart, and now is just decaying outside. Well, I want to draw another connection. Earlier in the, in the early chapters of this book, Edgar is thinking back on a particular being, a being that he sees sometimes in his dreams, the stranger in the cloak. And he just, he's very specifically says when he wakes up feeling empty. Yeah. So he's feeling kind of the, from a dream, he's feeling the effects of this. Is it from a dream? Is it? So I'll save some of the answer to that for the next chapter, but there's a little bit more in here. Um, that I wanted to, to go to with respect to this. Uh, let's see. So Edgar kind of takes the Sebastian idea, what good's a body without a brain? He um, takes it a little, one step further. Um, what good's a body without a brain, Sebastian had asked. And Edgar couldn't help thinking, what good's a brain without a heart? Yeah. So just a just a little interesting human touch that I that I really like there. Um, there's another book within a book. So like, how does Edgar know what ice is? We know that the back of the little wooden door that said "No one shall enter" it was ice. We know that one of the threes in the bathroom when he escaped it that first time, it was made of ice. And now he's in an entire location that seems to be ice. So I think it's the next chapter. He kind of unpacks that a little bit more, but he is aware of ice because in icy caverns because of his reading, you know, and he has read this book, which I don't think is, was a favorite of his, but it's called The Iceberg Cometh, written by you, Gino Neal. Is that a person, Eugene O'Neill? Well, spelled very differently, it's a famous play, The Iceman Cometh by Eugene O'Neill. Oh. like that little Easter egg you put in there, but, um, well, you've got a BA. Pretty. I've got a BA. I do have a BA. Oh. I think you've got a Bachelor of Arts. No, you've got a BA, um, <laughs> what is it, a theater, theater fan? Or book was that a playwright? You said? at least theater aware. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Nope, I uh, went right over my head. So, just hold on to that idea of like, what good's a body without a brain? Blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, a heart. yeah. Hold yeah. on to that for the next chapter. But uh, on the topic of name, I just like this little passage. Um, 
Sebat, it goes, it goes like this. It's about name. Sebastian, Edgar said worriedly. My name isn't Trunk, is it? The bird was silent once again. His face bore a shade of disbelief. Yes and no, he said. Again, cryptic. My real name, it's no one. Again, yes and no. Sebastian, are my parents inventors? Yes. Am I descended from a long line of inventors? Yes. Sebastian, Edgar said. Sebastian. But Sebastian had disappeared. Dang, Sebastian. <clears throat> you come in, you save the day, you drop some clues, and then you leave. It's just a little mic drop. Again. It's the Sebastian move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why is he always rushing off? Yeah, I don't know. He, We know him to be shy. He prefers hiding in the shadows to not be looked at. And now we know that a part of him is probably ashamed of how he looks because of he knows what he is to be, you know, a raven. Yeah. And, you know, this black, arguably beautiful bird. Now he's grown monstrous. He has these big feet. And they've all been, like, snuffed out by this machine. Yeah, he's the lone survivor. So... Before we get into the next chapter, just curious what your thoughts are. We've got this machine. We've got this cloaked stranger, it and him, these evil workers who are now trees, the darkness. What is in this stew of all these creatures, entities, evil, dark, adversarial characters, what do you make of it? I mean, it feels like a very lost world. There's creatures in it who are in some way affected by what happened with the darkness when it came. And it's still like, it's somehow still surviving like the factory is. Yeah. But it's in the grasp of him and it, and it can't get itself out of this situation. So everyone's suffering for it. And we, I should mention, all the talk that that is sprinkled in about is the factory a living thing as well? Yeah, I mean, it is. You want to take us into the next chapter? Yes. Chapter 10, titled The Machine Technician. So we ended the last chapter with Edgar in this huge, cavernous, ice-filled room huge and this massive machine approaches him with the big light shining right on him and out pops this stout man with a warthog head and edgar's like um you know you're shining that light right on me do you mind and he approaches Rude. this warthog and the warthog first is like startled by him and squeals and snorts like a warthog would. And <laughs> then they start a conversation and Edgar learns that this machine that the warthog is operating is the biggest one here. And then the warthog admits, well, it's the second biggest one here. But, you know, it's part of the EMPs. <laughs> What's that? The essential machine parts of the factory. And this machine is the heart. And every factory's got them. Every factory. Edgar wonders, 
wait, plural, multiple factories? There's more than one? What does that mean? The warthog then goes to offer Edgar a tour. He goes, you want to check out this machine? Hop in. Let's go for a ride. And it's then that Edgar realizes this machine is way bigger than he expected. It's described as 30 feet high and 100 feet long. So this machine's massive. It's like the size of a building. The warthog goes on to tell him, like, this machine, it's the heart of the factory. It gives energy to the entire place. We use raw materials, which is sludge, but it used to be natural gas until that ran out. And his job is to gather all the energy and transmit it into the entire factory. Edgar's like, well, how does that work? Warthog's like, I'll show you. So he starts up the machine again. And of course, it's this huge explosion of energy before they shoot off into the cavern at warp speed. And this is like where Edgar's brain goes into his stomach because they're going so fast. (laughs) And it's almost as if they're traveling for hours, as Edgar describes it. Yeah, probably not really hours. In the end, they reach a ballroom and they're at the entrance and the warthog says, I know who you are. You're Edgar no one. The rumors, I've heard the rumors and the rumors must be true. And if you look to your dreams you'd probably see more clues. Then he says, there was a big, bigger machine, bigger than my machine, and it doesn't work anymore. And there are other factories out there that are clean and safe and good, and it's up to people like you, Edgar, to save them. What? <laughs> no pressure. Um, the warthog says, Uh, the brain and the soul of the factory has fallen under darkness as well. Again, the whole body analogy. The factory is a body itself. And the warthog hands him an old envelope. And before he can answer any more questions, he jets off as quickly as he came and he's gone, leaving Edgar alone at the entrance of the ballroom. And of course, Edgar decides to walk through the doors, which slam shut behind him. And once again, he's alone. A lot of loneliness in this. I mean, there's so much in this chapter. Oh like, my gosh. That just like goes to another level with some things that we already know with a couple bombs being dropped. Well, Edgar starts off this book with like, what's out there in the real world? I just want to get out of these factory walls And now this warthog is telling me, like, I'm the person that has to save these other factories. There's more people out there like me. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, even before going into that, it's like, this is a warthog man. Like, it just was really funny. Like, I, I loved the little description of Edgar seeing this for the first time. Like, him on. It says, uh. There was another soft squeal followed by an impromptu snort, uh, as you pointed out, very uh, warthoggy. But Edgar squinted in disbelief. Can't be. It was. Standing atop the platform was a stout, broad-shouldered figure who had the knobby, fleshy head of a warthog. I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. But it's scared of Edgar. It's like he, he seems to be bouncing and squealing about in every little move that Edgar makes. Edgar's this little thin 10-year-old. 
it's it's so scary. And yet it itself is scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like scared of of whatever's out there because he's used to being alone too. Alone in the dark, yeah. Yeah. There's some there's some like similarities to Warnock in a way just because of his size. Oh yeah. He's got like a deep gravelly voice. Warnock's like kind of boomy, loud voice, but this guy's got like a gravelly deep again, very like potentially terrifying voice. Yeah, and you describe him as he's wearing a dark and filthy flak jacket, matching pants, and his wide feet are dressed in big black boots. Like, this is like, this guy's blue collar to the bone. Yeah. Yeah. He's a worker. He's a worker. He I mean, is he the uh, machine technician. So I like that he's just sort of gruff, like adversarial in that, you know, he's like, don't you know not to sneak up on people? Negger's like, I beg your pardon. How did I sneak up on you? But um, anyway, he's uh, kind of very uh, standoffish. That's what I was trying to trying to think. Trying to think of words here. Brain yeah. isn't working. Yeah, yeah. He goes, "Oh, this this machine. It's the biggest one here." Edgar, Edgar says, "The biggest one here." He goes. The warthog says. That's what I said. Are you deaf? Yeah. <laughs> but but then he goes on and it's like the more this warthog the more this warthog talks about his machine, his pride really comes through, like his passion. He's excited to talk about this machine. Oh my god. Yeah. He's part of the EMPs, essential machine parts. What does he say? He's like a highly technical term. Like you, you probably wouldn't understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, okay, so then he goes on to say, uh, let's see, and sorry, for, uh, let's see, this, uh, it's in that same paragraph, uh, this, uh, yeah, highly technical term, this, he said, pointing to the rig, is the heart. Every one of the factories, plural, they built, got a heart. Edgar's like, uh, uh-huh, excuse me, did you just say factories, plural, what? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you're a quick one anyway. Like I was saying, it's the heart of the factory. Come here, I'll show you. Yeah, yeah, like no big deal. Yeah. So we learn there, there are, there's not just one factory. We spent our whole time in a factory in this book. There's multiple. And these inventors created it. It's like multiple facts. So it's like a couple, it's like this body analogy kind of working on a couple levels. You've got within the factory itself, and he goes on to explain a lot of this. You've got a brain, not not sure what the brain is at this point. We think maybe it's like the big globes that Edgar sees, dreams about. Dreams about. They seem dormant, but he has imagined them like alive. You've got the heart, which uh, not in the sense of heart of like having a lot of heart. It seems like this is more like no heart in terms of like pumping. Pumping blood. Yeah. Pumping to, to energy rest. into different parts of the factory. Excuse me while I get this cat down. Fitz. Come on, baby. No. I love you. <laughs> wow. He lands heavy for that a cat. That sounded more violent than it was. It sounded like I dropped an anvil. I just dropped a cat like two feet. <laughs> I thought cats were supposed <laughs> to land lightly. Jeez. <laughs> Not this cat. Um, gosh, what the heck was I saying? Um, okay. The, the so heart. Got this heart. It's pumping energy. So we learn, okay, this machine, it like somehow takes energy that is squeezed out of sludge. And it, so it takes this 
energy is converted from the sludge, which isn't ideal, but it's all they have. And then it like, it's pumps it to the rest of this factory. Um, but then Edgar brings up an interesting point in his body analogy. What about soul? Is there a soul of the factory? And, uh, we'll, we'll dig into that more, but that's like one body. And yet we've just learned there are numerous factories that are all interconnected. And so there, it's almost like an organ system within a larger organism. Yeah. Anyway, yes. there's multiple levels. It's, it's, this thing just blew up, like blew wide open, but even beyond that, where it's in the same area, he talks about other kids. Did you underline that? Do you know where that is? Uh, let's see. It's, uh, it's right where he's talking about. Anyway, uh, maybe we'll, yeah. we'll come back to it if we find it, but yeah, he talks about like other kid there's being other kids other other folks there being other kids other folks yeah, yeah he says look to your dreams young edgar trust your mind and trust your instincts you will find the answers there i heard reports of the other factories that they were still in working order and keeping the world good safe clean some other young folks like yourself are all that's left to stop the world from going the way of this factory okay boom there you go so now he's just been told at least this is old, might be like outdated news by now, but seems to be the current news and information that the Warthog Man has. There are other kids. Edgar's not alone. That's exciting. And what, are they in factories too? Right, yeah. We don't know. I, Edgar must wonder like, is there another orphan boy like me in another sludge factory? Right. And the way he says it, though, it's like, you know, some other young folks like yourself are all that's left to stop the world from going the way of this factory. So here he's just told him, you and other kids, you're our only hope. Yeah. And I just have to, I said it just now, but I, I have to reiterate, this could be old news. This could be old information. This, this isn't necessarily like hot off the press you know, who knows when this warthog man who's afraid of a 10 year old boy who's living in the dark got his information last. Like, when did the newswire come through? Sure. But so, it's news to Edgar. It's news to Edgar, for sure. But to us, the reader, we have to keep in mind this might be only partially true or it could be totally true. Right. How much do we believe this warthog? Right. And I mean, like, we already know it and him are after Edgar and they clearly want him dead. So. Have they, if there are other kids, have they snuffed them out already? Right. Are they still alive? Are they dead? Are these factories really good, clean, and safe? Or right. are they also fallen under darkness? Right. Like it, it seems like the first, it definitely seems like whatever this, their state is, this is the factory that is like, this is the start of it all. Like the darkness, it feels like the darkness in the, at this factory location is the darkest of the darkness. Yes. Yeah. It's maybe, you know, the first factory that's fallen under. Yeah. It's and like, if Edgar and everyone else, all of these other kids don't stop it, then the other factories will fall under as well. And then adding the level of like, our factories alive, um, we're told that it is a living thing, the factory itself. 
the warthog man said the warthog man says but you ain't getting out neither with the factory pulling against it pulling against uh, edgar getting out edgar asks how is the factory pulling against that and then the the warthog guy's kind of like hey you know i'm just the we're just the workers you know i, I don't know um he does say the soul okay he says the his this here heart the machine that he pilots does its duty the brains what's in decay okay so maybe the brain is that that machine or maybe it isn't what we'll, we'll figure that out that glorious thing you dream about oh okay yeah he says it right there um but the soul's the real problem the soul the essence is just as alive as you and me okay the factory has a soul and maybe we will meet that soul the soul seems to be uh evil right now certainly um weakened and compromised yeah maybe not weakened but compromised yeah yeah Oof. we got a lot going on um <clears throat> Since we're going to start to get a little bit more into the idea of if there is magic, what that magic is, we round out this chapter with this this passage I wanted to go over. Um, Ever since the factory had come under the influence of the mysterious darkness, it had come under a spell. And Edgar knew very little about spells. Books on the topic were few. But he had discovered in the past few days that the mystery of the ice was just a property of a grand smell. <laughs> <laughs> of a grand smell. Of grand spell. And someday I'll be able to read words without error. Even my own words. And spells had only as much power as the one under its influence allowed. Once he realized this, the goosebumps on his flesh went away his breath stopped forming frozen cloud bursts. The air became pleasant. Okay, now I get this visual of the, this ballroom that you mentioned. Um, a couple of torchlights flickered into being, lighting up the grand facade of the ballroom entrance. Its two austere wooden doors creaked open on their own, shedding clouds of dust and debris, revealing a massive room glowing amid the warmth of two dozen torchlights along a colonnade plush red drapes hung from a high up ceiling and then just to to complete the thought edgar stood in the entrance basking in the orange glow of this ballroom except for a long red carpet the room was empty this he knew to be a spell far stronger than wooden doors and hovering threes for many years his cold cement room had taught him to be wary of the most dangerous of all spells a spell called comfort Ooh. This ballroom reminds me of the ballroom in the Beauty and the Beast with the big library and it's totally empty. Oh yeah, it's just probably really cool actually. Oh yeah. That's just the warm firelight and the space, the colonnade, like the drapes of velvet seems very rich but not full of stuff. Oh, this is like a fantasy compared to the rest of the factory, which is cold, dark, cement, copper-plated, and smelly. You're in a ballroom now with the red velvet drapes and a 
carpet. Like, oh my God, sign me up. It's our first hint of opulence. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm glad Edgar doesn't trust it. Yeah, he's like, this isn't real. Something's up. Something's up. And what do you think of this whole, like, this concept of spells? Well, it's, I mean, the factory is alive. The factory has magic. You see doors closing and shutting on their own. You're hearing things. You're, I, I mean, there's so many creatures and weird happenings. Like, of course, there's magic in this factory. So preview of the the finish of the book. We'll go into it a lot more next episode, but preview. We are about to learn about the stranger, the cloak stranger, and the connection to the factory. We are about to meet the quote unquote soul of the factory. There's it and him and uh, and Warnock and all that. We're going to learn about Warnock. We haven't seen him in a while. We are certainly going to learn more about the machine, which the Warthog Man is referred to as the brain, this thing that he dreams about, Edgar dreams about. And... It will all center around this concept of spells. And yet in that line that Edgar says, it's a, kind of like his his thoughts, that, that there's nothing... Yeah, I want to read it again, actually. Because the point I want to make is that this applies to Edgar's situation, but certainly is a bigger statement, and it feels very much like theme. He says, uh, Many years his cold cement room had taught him to be wary of the most dangerous of all spells, a spell called comfort. It's not a spell at all. It's comfort. And yet in the context, we understand Edgar is saying, on one hand, the sense of of comfort is a spell and that that sense of comfort is being created right now by these drapes, this welcoming ballroom, this warm light. That's the Edgar world, Edgar ground, uh, like ground level version of that idea. But then for us as a reader who live in our own world, who are connecting to a story in human ways or ways where we can apply lessons in our own life or ideas to our own lives. We're going comfort. Yeah. Comfort is a spell. Comfort makes you do less. Comfort makes you, um, uh, possibly lazy. Certainly, um, God, the, the word I'm looking for. Compliant. Complacent. Complacent. I knew yeah. we'd get there together, babe. Oh yeah. Theoretically compliant. But complacent, that is exactly the word that I was looking for. And that can be very dangerous, especially when things change by taking action. Certainly in a story following a hero, action is important. So complacency would definitely be the enemy of action and the enemy of hero heroism. And so, yeah, I just, I love that this little link 
we're saying more in this story than than might meet the eye, and it's not heavy-handed. But I think this is one of those places where it is stated really well and and feels clear. Well, I gotta say, Edgar is one bright kid that the he could look at a ballroom and know this isn't real. This is a spell. Is amazing because I think if I had stumbled upon that ballroom, I would run in with arms wide open and start <laughs> singing the hills are alive with the sound of music and then I'd get eaten by a monster or something <laughs> yeah but you'd stop singing monster's <laughs> <laughs> uh, like too much vibrato Thanks for listening to episode five Woo. of our recap series. And um, the next episode is the final episode of book one. So Woo. if you've made it this far, then you've got one more episode to go before book two, book three, and then eventually book four when Jason writes it. And if, Early you're, next year, if you're listening to this because you found us through the Brewery Art Walk, which we hosted this past weekend, then we're happy that you're here, that our little bookmarks with the QR code worked, and leave us a comment on our YouTube feed so we can say hi oh, to please. our fellow Art Walk patrons. And if you found us another way, that's equally as remarkable. Please um, give us those stars or thumbs ups or comments follows notifications anything it really helps us and um we have it, met people who have been listening who are really enjoying this so it'd be really great to to hear from others yes please we'd like to know it's more than our moms and sister reading listening to this please <laughs> right i think people are going to find this but we might be finished with the season already yeah so thank you and we'll see you next week.